0: They're actually going to be in a different room tonight because of the, uh, the pasta for PA. They're going to be in what's called the playhouse room. So they'll be, as you go out, when you go to get your kids, they'll be over to the left instead of uh, to the right tonight so you can find them at the end of the service. So, hey, let me just say thank you too again to Steve Ruggiero for stepping in. Was that not an amazing word he gave last weekend at both campuses? If you weren't here you need to get that on the podcast. It was just absolutely fantastic. I blogged about it this week, and so I'm telling you, if you were not here, um, and if, you, if you've never been on the website before, and that's a daunting task, call one of us. We'll help you figure it out, but you need to get on there and hear, hear that message. So I'm excited tonight about what God's already done in our service. Come on. You excited about what God's already done in your hearts? <clears throat> when I was uh, this week, I, God woke me up from the middle, in the middle of the night, and uh, I was just in a, a great sleep. And uh, anybody, your humanity gets the better of you, and you just think to yourself, God, couldn't you have told me that when I got up in the morning, right? You know, because he, he wakes you up in the middle of the night. Is that just me, true confessions? Anybody else, right? So He woke me up in the middle of the night this week and said, I'm going to do something supernatural in some people's lives this weekend. And so I think He's already done that. And uh, through that word that Stephanie had, and then some of the people just from knowing your stories, and uh, and then I know from st- stories that I'm sure we don't know about being in a place of waiting. If, and, and so I just want to encourage you. I want to spend some time on that, just for a couple of minutes. That if you've never read that story of Elijah and how it, it had not rained for for three years as a, a, a just God's judgment upon the land, but His judgment upon the land was upon the good and the bad. You with me? Everybody was suffering equally together. And then we have the great story of Elijah with the uh, pagan prophets on Mount Carmel, and it was after that that Elijah began to pray for the rain to come. And, uh, and then, you know, he goes out every time, and then as Stephanie shared, and finally the, his young protege comes back and says, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. And so I just want to encourage you that for some of you, and that was Vanessa shared in that place of waiting, that God's going to give you your glimpse of something. It's the, it's so, it might be something small, that, that will, that will re hope in your life. The, the, a cloud the size of a man's hand. And then that grew and grew and grew and became a rain that replenished the land. So I just want to pray into that again for those of you who are here. If you've ever been in a desperate place, you know how hard it can be. So Father, we just pray again for every person that's in this room. We do believe that you want to do something super natural in people's hearts tonight. That when our lives are filled with despair and discouragement, our humanity does not have the capacity to give birth to the kind of hope that needs to rise up inside of us like a refreshing rain in the midst of a drought of goodness. And so we pray for every person here, whatever that cloud that's going to come. It might be small in the beginning, that's going to become a torrent, a rain of refreshing of goodness, that you were going to rain down upon them in Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody said together, amen. Amen. Well, we are in a, a series. This is is week three. We, we built on it a little bit for Father's Day, but really for the focus of the series, this is week three, and we're going to finish it up uh, next weekend. It's We're entitling it 24 after the Popular television show, and I'm going to connect that for you uh, in in just a minute. But but this idea that 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 we have a mission, that time is short, that evil must not win, and we're kind of building on the theme of the show, if you're familiar with it. And uh, this this idea of a uh, of you know how the how the series was the the whole series happened over a 24-hour period. There was a sense of urgency. I joked at the beginning of the series. I st- I tried to watch the show, but I would be so stressed out. You know, by the the end of it, there was a sense. Now, now God doesn't want you to be stressed out, but kind of building on what Steve preached about last week. He does want you to live as if your days are numbered because they are. There should be a sense of urgency that we're living with because we've been called. We have a mission that God has given to us and evil must not win. And so we we looked at Revelation 12, 11, and that's the famous verse where it says, and they overcame by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, loving not their lives, even unto death. And I shared that, that that verse kind of catches me off guard every time I read it, because whenever Jesus does something, it seems to me there should be a period at the end of the sentence, there's not an and that's to come. Is that with me? with me? Especially when they, what follows the end is something that we need to do. You, you think that when Jesus does something, it's, it's done. Nobody else has to do anything, but it says they overcame, speaking about the devil, our enemy, who's a very real being in the world that's trying to thwart your destiny. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, But it's not a period. It says, and, and by the word of your testimony, which is the story of your journey of transformation becoming a disciple. And so right here at the end of the Bible, the Holy Spirit gives John this revelation that he in turn gives to us that being and making disciples, it's our secret weapon. What Jesus did is finished. He doesn't ever have to come back and die on the cross again. Jesus' work is done. What's undone is your work and my work this journey of transformation, becoming a disciple. And so we've introduced to the church 24 virtues because the biblical concept of a of disciple is not about what we do, it's about who we become. It's about who we are. It's not about what we do. And as you study through scriptures, you come across what George Wood, a great modern-day scholar, calls five his five great growth lists. You've got Matthew 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount, You've got Galatians 5, 5, which is the fruit of the Spirit. You've got 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter. Then you've got Romans 12, and you've got 2 Peter chapter 1. And when you take out all the overlap, I believe that you can distill that down to 24 very specific virtues, gentle, self-control, persevering, kindness, goodness, wisdom, faith, truthful, merciful, hospitable, patience, devoted, meek, emotionally honest, desiring, righteousness, peaceful, faithfulness, humble, serving, fervent, joy, hope, love, and affectionate. If we painted with words, this would be the portrait of a disciple of Christ, and it's given to us so we know what we should be reaching for with our lives. We should be on a journey in our lives where these 24 words, more and more throughout the days of our life, begin to describe who we are as a person. So, if you've been a part of this church for any amount of time, you know about the 1, the 6, and the 12. I'm not going to reteach on that tonight. The notes of the series are on the on lo- on the on the website. We also have a, a series called His House that we did at the beginning of the year that talks about these three numbers in great detail. Just in short, the 1 is the great promise of Christ, heaven now, heaven forever, which gives our church its message. The 6 are the 6 great commands, or the teachings of Christ. And then the 12 are what we call the pathways, which are spiritual disciplines. And what we say is, if I want to have the 1, I've got to fulfill the 6 and if I'm going to fulfill the six, I've got to walk in the twelve. And if you give your life to that journey, you will create an environment in your life where those 24 virtues will flourish. You know, the parenting curriculum that we teach growing kids God's way, a huge part of that curriculum is all about the environment that you create in your home. The environment that you create in your home is such a huge part of setting your children up for success in their future. If you talk to us about marriage, if you do marriage counseling with us, you're gonna hear. We're gonna talk a lot. The atmosphere that you create in your marriage is a huge part of what makes your marriage set, be set up for success, and it's the true for our spiritual life. You create an environment in your life by giving yourself to the one, the six, and the twelve that make those twenty-four possible. This message is deeply personal for me. It is deeply personal for me. I was praying just today in the office. I get in the office early on Saturday. And just, I just pray through the message, and I was, I was praying through the message. God just reminded me of this story. I have not thought about it in years, about when, when uh, it was in 1989. I don't remember when it was. I graduated in 89, so it was probably in the summer or the, or the fall, and I was a bartender in downtown Richmond. My parents were so excited I was putting that degree in business economics to work that they had sacrificed so much for me. And, uh, and I, I lived an ugly life. The, the person that I used to be, I, I say this is my break-even year. I've got 23 years in as a devoted follower of Christ. I had 23 years as, as a, just, a, just an ugly pagan person. And, and so next year is going to be my year with the scale tips. You with me? I'll, be, I'll have 24 years in as a devoted follower of Christ. And so I was thinking about this one night that we had gone home to our house. I lived in a row house at 303 North 19th Street in the Fan District and, uh, down, down in Richmond. And I was there with a friend named Sean Sweeney. And we, hit, we had a house full of people. We had been up all night partying. And, uh, and we were the only two people left. The sun was coming up. We had been up all night. And we were the only two people in there. The Rolling Stones was playing on the stereo on a cassette tape. That's a little plastic thing that looks like this that has this... And Sean looks up at me, and he asks me this question. He says, do you have anything you want to do with your life? It's like both of us in this moment entered into this place of sobriety supernaturally. And and without even thinking, and not even having had this thought before, these words came out of my mouth. You ever have one of these moments where you talk, and you know God's birthing those words inside of you, and they're not coming from your mind? I said, one day I want to write a book about what it means to be a Christian. And he looks at me with this very odd stare, right? Because I I know what he's thinking, what have you done with my friend, you know? And then this is what he says to me, you've got to do that, Fred. You've got to do that. And then he said, he said, I can't imagine what it will be like to live with a sense of purpose, knowing that you're going to make that kind of difference in people's lives. It was the supernatural moment that God just kind of took control, even though the environment that we were in, even that moment, was just an ugly environment. Are you with me? That in that moment, something was birthed inside of me. I remember it was a year, it, it, was, it wasn't until about a year later, in December of 1990, when I made a vow of devotion to Christ, I wanted to find Sean Sweeney. That he was a person that I got into a lot of trouble with, and I, I said, I want to find this guy and, and tell him I'm beginning my journey for this purpose, and I wanted to talk to him about that night that we had shared together in a conversation, and it was before Facebook. You know, you Facebook stalk people. You can track them down nowadays, so I, I called some friends that knew him, and, and and nobody had his number, and so I began to pray, right? I just got, I need to get in touch with this guy. I need to tell him what's happening in my life, and just a few days passed. I was living in still in Richmond, but in a different place, and uh, and I came out, I lived in this above ground basement apartment on uh, Stewart Avenue and uh, I came up out up the steps onto the street level and as I was, I, it just cost and a car comes to a stop right in front of me at the intersection with a stop sign and there was Sean Sweeney right in the car. I was like, Sean! And he's this crazy guy, and he's hollering and screaming. I said, I need your number. And so he gave me his number. He drove off, and we were able to get together. And I was able to share with him about this incredible journey that I had been on. And, and I was able to share with him the message of the gospel of Christ. And he didn't make a vow of devotion to Christ, but I know a seed was planted in his life. So when I say this is, per, this is personal to me because this is my story. I don't know if I'm ever going to write that book, but I know I'm going to preach this message as long as I have breath because this is my story of transformation. I was an ugly person. And I'm not that person anymore. Now, now, I'm not perfect. I'm far from it. But I am far from the person that I used to be. And 23 years from now, when I'm 69, I want to be able to look back at the person that I am today, back in 2013, and say, I have changed just as much in these 23 years as I did in those. Because there's that Much of a gap between who we are and who Christ is. If you've been walking with Christ for 50 years, we've still got so much more work to do. This is personal for me. I hope it's personal for you because it's the life you're living. And if you're not, I hope that this month, like December of 1990, was my month, that it's going to be your month where you say, I'm going to get started. I'm going to get started. Proverbs 13, 4 says, lazy people want much, but get little, but those who work hard will prosper. Hey, the message of our church is not an easy message. You're going to break a sweat here. You with me? We've got a message that says, no, you you can't work your way into heaven. And that's the doctrine of grace, what Jesus did on the cross. You make a vow of devotion to him. And that's promised to you. That's the heaven forever with a capital H. But the lowercase h, the heaven now, that requires work. It requires sweat. It requires effort. It requires intentionality. It requires us giving our life to the journey that we've just been on. 2 Peter 1.8, we're not going to turn there, but that's right at the end of one of the great growth lists that talks about us being productive as Christians. There's there's this idea of working and i want to i came across this one recently it's in psalm 16:11 i want to read this one to you psalm 16:11 listen to this it says you will show me the way of life granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. I remember in that season of my life when I was making a decision in 1990 about being a devoted follower of Christ, the reason why that I didn't want to become a Christian is because I thought I had to give up a life of pleasure, and it wasn't until I had this revelation when I read John 10.10 where Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest possible measure. I had not read this verse yet, but in Psalm 16, no, no, no. God wants to release us into a life of pleasure, and we say it all the time here at the City Life Church. Anything that He's going to ask you to lay down are those things fun sure there's a measure of fun there's a measure of pleasure that you can have in a life of debauchery but what god says you're settling for less he's saying hey you've settled for a cheap substitute of the greater things that you could have it's the life that he wants you to begin so in this series that's just by way of an introduction we're talking about 12 principles. That govern the twelve pathways we 're not preaching and teaching on the twelve pathways, which are spiritual disciplines like prayer and worship and generosity and stewardship. We have twelve of them. you can find them on our website as our core values. but we, in this series we 're talking about the principles that govern the pathways because if the pathways are going to be fruitful in your life you 've got to understand how they work and so for two weeks ago, we did four time permitting we 're going to do four tonight, but we talked two weeks ago about the principle of concurrence, right our new Christian curse word concatenation. We talked about the principle of concatenation, the principle of completeness, and the principle of connection. Again, you can get those notes online, or you can listen to the podcast. So time time permitting, I want to try to get through four more of them tonight, and then we'll wrap up the series with four next week. We have a mission. Time is short. Come on. Evil must not win. Proverbs 30, 18 through 19. Oh, I like this proverb. We just came out of Proverbs not too long ago through the, the chronological reading plan. We pick a different reading plan every year as a church. and Even if you've not been on it, just go, go on to a website like BibleGateway.com. Just start with where we are. Don't say I'll pick it up next year. You don't have to catch up. Just get started with where we are. Proverbs 30, 18 through 19, it says, there are three things that amaze me, no, four things that I don't understand. Now, you find writing like this in the Bible where they say three and then the fourth, or they'll say six and then the seventh, and that was a poetic, poetic way in ancient language of saying the last one is just more extreme than the others. And so the first three, it says, how an eagle glides through the sky, how a snake slithers on the rock, and how a ship navigates the ocean. Now, you've got to remember in ancient times, the science did not exist for them to understand these. They just knew them to be true through their life experience, but they didn't have intellectual comprehension yet. Now, we have some intellectual comprehension for the first three, but I like the fourth one that the Holy Spirit inspired Solomon to write here in this proverb, because still, I think if Jesus doesn't come back for another thousand years, this last one is still going to be a mystery. How a man loves a woman. Come on, it's good stuff. You ask me, how can I love this woman so much? I I can't, I can't, There's no mathematical formula I can give you. I can just tell you that my heart overflows with love and affection for every moment of my life. If you're married, I hope you have that story. If you don't, then let's talk because we want to get you on that journey. We want you to live, if you're married, in this mystery of how is it that I could love someone this much. And it's a powerful principle that's given to us in Scripture because in our humanity, we do not like that it works this way. We want to understand it here before we give our heart to it here. And God says, no, 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 not in my kingdom. You've got to believe it in your heart if you have any hope of ever understanding it in your mind. John 3 could be a whole sermon series unto itself, but I'm just going to drill down on just one little part. This is John 3, verses 7 and 8. This is the famous conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. In 7 and 8, it says this, it says, So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from. And again, remember, they didn't have the science of climatology like we have today. You can't tell where it comes from, so you can't explain how people... Wait a minute, let me back up. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so too you cannot explain how people are born of the Spirit. He's trying to tell Nicodemus something that we've got to understand. He's saying, Nicodemus, if you wait to give yourself to it, when you finally have intellectual comprehension, you're never going to give yourself to it because that's not how it works. You've got to be- leave it in your heart before you have any hope of understanding it in your mind. And so he takes him to something that he can relate to. He's saying Nicodemus was a wealthy man. He would have traveled much in his life. He's saying, Nicodemus, every time you climb on a ship you understand that the wind is going to take you somewhere. You cannot explain to me the science of how it works, but yet you entrust your life to it all the time. And he's saying, you've got to trust me, Nicodemus. When I'm teaching you things that are beyond your intellectual comprehension but the truth of it resonates in your heart, you've Got to put the full weight of your life on those things, and in this same chapter, Jesus. <coughs> All right, I'm not going to need Steve tonight. I'm going to finish. Come on, Jesus says this incredible saying in Deuteronomy seven nine. We're given one of the great names of God that's so often forgotten, right? The names of God, and if you've been in a church around, you've, you've, you've been around those names, Jehovah Jireh, he's our provider, Jehovah Shema, the, the God who's there. But this one's never included in the list, and I think it's one of the best ones. It's Amanel. It means, I am the faithful God. You find that in Deuteronomy 7.9. God speaks of it. I am the faithful God who keeps his promises. And so in John 3, if you've got a King James Bible, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you. We talk about this text a lot at a church, at our church. And if you've got a modern translation, it might say, truly, truly. But in Aramaic, what, what Jesus said is he said, aman, aman. Now those words to every Jewish person in the audience would have stirred them because they would have been familiar with Deuteronomy 7, 9. They would have understood that Jesus was saying, If you can trust God and what he says, because he is the great Amman El, then you can trust what I'm saying to you today. There has got to be something in our lives where we give way to this moment of saying, God, even though I don't understand it in my head, I feel the truth in my heart, and I'm going to put the full weight of my life on those things. It is one of the principles that governs the pathways. You might look at those 12 things and say, Fred, I don't understand how doing them is going to change me. I don't understand how doing them changed you in such a dramatic way. And I'm here to tell you, I have very limited intellectual comprehension of how it can change us either. But I know this, that it changed me. And I know it's the pathways that Christ gives to us. And he says to you, just as he said to Nicodemus, "Aman." Amen. You believe it in your heart before you can ever have any hope of understanding it in your head. All right, number two, which, or number six on our list, building from the four from two weeks ago, the principle of conviction. Blessed are those who hunger, which means to crave, seek with eager desire, and thirst to long for eagerly, eagerly for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Matthew 5, 6, on the Sermon on the Mount. This idea of conviction versus addiction, it's very similar but uh, amazingly different. I've got some personal experience with addiction in my life. Some of you have some personal experience with addiction in your life, and you know that addiction is something that controls you. you with me? And addiction, is is, it controls you. You feel helpless against it. That's not what conviction is. Conviction doesn't control you, it inspires you. Conviction motivates you. These words like hunger and thirst, there's times in our lives where we hunger and thirst for things that are not of God, but then there's another side of us that hungers and thirsts for the things that are of God. And You might be one of those people that says, I wish God would just take that part of me away, but he doesn't want to take that part of you away because the part of you that makes you vulnerable to addiction is the part of you that makes it possible for you to have conviction. He wants you to learn... What it's like to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then he says, for they shall be filled. Psalm 32, 9, a favorite verse of mine, the psalmist writes there, I don't want you to be like a horse or a mule that needs a bit in their mouth. What is that about? God said, hey, I don't want you to do these things because someone's controlling you. I want you to do these things out of conviction. I want you to do them because there was a desire that is welling up in your heart. We think about a bit in a positive way, right? That we put a bit. If you've ever ridden a horse, you don't want to ride that horse without a bit in their mouth, because that bit in their mouth is what gives you control over them. God says, "Hey, that might govern your relationship with beasts of burdens, but you're not my beasts of burden. You're my children. And I don't want you to live your life with a bit in your mouth and a rein in my hand. I want you to live your life with a desire in your heart because I am the reigning king over your life. There is a moment when we make a vow of devotion to Christ at some point in our journey where we cross the threshold of embracing the governance of God. Maybe you've made a vow of devotion to Christ and you're on your way to heaven, but if you have never embraced the governance of God, if you've never stepped into this life where we call it passion-filled, life-defining, moment-by-moment governing, if you've never stepped into that kind of relationship with God, you are going to live a life of spiritual mediocrity for the rest of your days, and Jesus died for you to have more than that. Convictions are the thoughtful, determined, focused acts of a properly properly engaged will that says, "I I can't help but do because I am. That's the life that we're called to live. That when we're waking up in the morning and there's an opportunity for us to read the Bible that not because of control, but because of conviction, that we find a quiet place and open up that book. We come into a setting like this and and Vanessa talks about writing a check to sponsor one of those teenagers that for some of you tonight that you're going to get your checkbook out. Not because of control, come on, but because of conviction. Because there's a desire that's going to well up inside of your heart. The principle of conviction, these 12 pathways, God does not want us to do them because we're obligated. He wants us to do them because they're their conviction of who we are. All right, number seven. Oh, we're doing good. Let me take a sip of this. Oh, it's empty. I'm going to go right over here and get some more. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. I haven't preached since, since last week. I have a lot of words to get out. Oh, I like this one, the principle of covenant. My pursuit of the pathways is driven by a desire to honor God, because of the covenant relationship that I have with him. You see, this the, the principle of conviction and the principle of covenant, they're similar, but they're a little bit different. The principle of conviction is in operation in my life because I know that I'm going to benefit from these things that I do. The principle of the covenant, which motivates me to give my life to this journey of as a disciple, I'm motivated to do it because I'm honoring him. You with me? It's a little bit different. This one I do because I know it's going to benefit for me. But there's also something to be said. When I give my life to this journey of being a disciple, it honors God. It's for His glory. Now, I want to take you to Genesis 15, and we're going to start reading in verse 7. Genesis 15, we're going to start reading in verse 7 in this one. here we go. It says, and the Lord told him, this is God speaking to Abram, his name hasn't been changed yet. It says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, of the Chaldeans, to give you this land as your possession. Now, he's a stranger in this land, right? It's like what we were talking about before. There's no evidence of, 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 of this coming. It's, just, it's the beginning of a promise. It's a seed. It's a cloud the size of a man's hand. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? And the Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram presented all these things to him, and then he killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. There's other meaning here that's another sermon for another time. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. So this is a barbaric scene, Are you with me? He's got these animals, he's cut them in two with these ancient tools. There's blood everywhere, and there's entrails, and these animals, and they're all spread out, and there's a little bit of a pathway, an aisle, can we call it that, that's been made by these dead beasts. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep. Come on, sleepings of God, praise the Lord. And a terrifying darkness came down over him. And then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants, and he has no children, by the way, will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. All of this comes true, right? The moment that the Israelites were set free, that they had been in this land for 400 years. So this is a prophetic moment about what's to come that we see fulfilled later in Scripture. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end... They will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. Verse 17, here it comes. And after the sun went down and the darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, that represents the presence of God, pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I, g- I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the Euphrates River. The land now occupied, and then it gives all the people, and he's saying one day this land is going to be yours. Now, why do we take so much time to read that? Because this was an actual ancient practice, that when a greater king would conquer a lesser king, the lesser king would literally bring animals to a designated place, and they would do exactly what God had Abram do. They would divide the animals in half, and they would create an aisle. They would create an aisle, and then the lesser king, when they were making promises of allegiance to the greater king, that the lesser king would walk through as they were making these vows of allegiance to the conquering king. And as they walked through that aisle, it was their way of saying, May it be done to me as it's been done to these animals if I don't keep my word to you. It was never the greater king walking for the lesser king because the greater king's the conqueror. Are you with me? So here we have, you think, and this is what Abram's thinking, right? Because he knows about this practice. He thinks God's going to have him walk through these animals. You with me? He's thinking, here I am. I'm entering into a covenant relationship with the creator of the universe. He's chasing away the birds because he can't wait to walk through this aisle and say to God, be it unto me as it is if I don't keep my promise. But God is the one who passes down the aisle. Why is that? Because God is writing a story. God's always writing a story. And it's a prophetic picture of Christ dying for the sins of the world. I think Abraham was probably perplexed about what happened that night for the rest of his life, right? Later on in life, he'd probably just be out in the field thinking, why did God pass through, right? It just didn't make make sense to him. Not until he got to heaven and he saw the plan unfolding before his eyes. Because we failed God in our covenant. You with me? We have failed him. All of us in our heart have betrayed God so many times, and it's the powerful, the prophetic story that we're given that God says, because He knows He's going to keep His covenant. He's not walking through just for Himself. He's walking through for all of humanity. He's saying, if I don't keep my promise, may it be that all this be done to me, but He's also saying, Abram, I'm walking through for you and every person who's ever going to live. That if they don't keep their covenant, which he knows that we're not, he's saying, I will die a terrible death for them. I'll take their punishment upon myself. It is the story of the death of Christ as he was torn asunder on the cross. We give our lives to this journey of being a disciple. Because we are in a covenant relationship with the creator of the universe, and he has paid a terrible death just so that we can have the hope of the opportunity to spend an eternity with him. All right, our last one the principle of changelessness. It's really timelessness, but because I have an alliteration addiction, it's changelessness. Timelessness is the quality of never needing change because it is it has been and it will always be perfect i love jeremiah six 16. we're not going to turn there but it talks about the ancient pathways these pathways that god has given to us they are timeless i was laughing with nate back there during the announcements and vanessa was up here and she said the word hallelujah remember that did you hear her say that "Hallelujah." that's old school pentecostalism right there are you with me anybody remember that I grew up in churches where they literally, literally, as part of the worship set, the worship leader, the the music minister, as they were often referred to, would divide the congregation into two groups. Oh, you, you were there, some of you, remember. And they would say, all right, everybody on this side, you're on this group. And we, they, like, they would pick a couple, like Kevin and Lynette. And they would say, that, you know, they, they're, 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 are you, this side, you're on that side. And, they, and then everybody knew they couldn't wait, right? And the first group would get started, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And then the worship director would point to the other group, and they would say, ye the Lord. come on, they're old school. And then they'd go back to this side, and it would, they would do it in rounds, right? And then they'd say, praise ye the Lord, hallelujah, praise ye the Lord, right? And you knew revival was breaking out when you sang that song, right? I leaned over to Nate and say, may it be by the grace of God that we never do that here at the City Life Church. Because that, my friend, is not timeless. (laughs) But there are some things that are, like old school cinema candy. Oh, come on. You know what I'm talking about. When I was growing up, we'd go to the movie theater. We didn't buy the candy at the overpriced concession. This is where I learned how to be sneaky from my mother, right? Every good mother teaches their children how to be sneaky. We would go to the supermarket down the street from the movie store, and moms carry big purses so they can sneak stuff into places. You with me? And so we would go down, we'd get to buy this big old box, whatever we wanted, big old box of candy, and I would always get Good and Plenty or Juji fruits. So I've saved one of my, I've got another giveaway that I'm doing tomorrow morning in Williamsburg, so the Juji Fruits are there, because I love licorice, and so these are licorice, and there was always licorice in the in the Juji. I can't eat Juji Fruits anymore, because it'll pull all the teeth out of my mouth. So Raisinets, caramel creams, this is still an all-time favorite, not this one, I like the one that comes in the little rectangular cardboard box with the cellophane on it, oh come on, they sweat. They're a little bit greasy. Yeah, that's some good stuff. Timeless, changelessness. So I'm giving these to Brad Hauser because he's turning 50 this week. So so he gets some old school candy because he's old school. He's old school. Don't you want to look like that when you're 50? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Saying. Genesis 2. You're going to invite the worship team to come back up. Genesis 2, 21 to 23. Which one am I reading out of here? All right, I'm just going to turn to it here. Genesis 2, Marty, in Genesis 14, it's a short trip. All right, Genesis 2, beginning in verse 21. It says, The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. I think there's something prophetic about naps happening in the sermon tonight. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And when the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man, I'm going to translate this for you. He says, wow. But it says, at last, the man exclaimed. I love this story, right? Because, because, because God... One of the first jobs he gives to Adam is to name all the animals. And all the animals, right? They, they've got their their other half that are with them. In 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 this in this kingdom that God has birthed him into, everybody's got somebody except for him, right? Now we don't know how long it took him to name all the animals, but I'm guessing that that's a that's a pretty big list on your task, right? If you wake up guys in your honeydew list, one of them is name all the animals of the world. You're oh god, I'm never gonna check this off, right? God was setting him up. He wanted him to feel the gravity of solitude right before he stepped in to giving him this great gift. Now, a lot of things in the world are going to change. The songs that we sing, the candy that we eat, but this one right here, oh, you better believe, it's just like it is today as it was in the beginning of time. And any of you here, guys, if you've fallen in love, you know what I'm talking about. You've lived Genesis 2. I remember when, when Vanessa and I were dating, I think it was our, our second date, we went to this little restaurant down in the fan, I, I lived in the Richmond, and then we went down, there's a bell Isle. you can go down there, I don't even know if you still can, but the old bridge that used to cross over the river, you could walk out onto it at your own peril, right, because there's gaps missing, and you've got to know where to step, but you could get pretty far out, like a third of the way out into the James River, and on a moonlit night, it's just beautiful, the water's passing by, and, and we, and we walked out there together, and I can't tell you the whole story, right? Because there's children in the room. But anyways, so we walk out on the, on the bridge, and we're just standing there. And I, I knew, I knew that night, I was going to spend the rest of my life with her. Now I just had to convince her. And I'm telling you, if you're here, you understand this idea of timelessness right now. Because you felt what Adams felt. You felt what I felt and God wants you to have those feelings as a disciple when you look at that list of those 12 pathways whether you understand them or not whether the conviction to do them has birthed inside of you and if you don't have the conviction for them then you've got to do them just so the conviction can come because the principle of the kingdom is that right feelings follow right actions so if you don't have the conviction to do it you start doing it and then you'll long for them Maybe you've not even stepped into this covenant relationship with Christ tonight. Maybe you will during this last song. You'll make a vow of devotion to him. You'll just simply say, Jesus, I give my life to you. It's just that simple. No matter who you are, no matter how little or how much time you've spent in the church, when you look at those lists of 12, prayer, worship, fasting, scripture, accountability, reaching, gathering, and relationship, stewardship, generosity, rest and service, something inside of you just says, you know what? I think those things are going to be meaningful forever. At no point in time is anybody going to come and say, you know what? I just don't think reading the Bible is important to me as a devoted follower of Christ anymore. You look at those things, you see the timelessness of what they are. You and I, we give ourselves to a lot of things that come and go. May it be that we would forever give ourselves to these things that are eternal. Stand with me. Father, we see a cloud the size of a man's hand. (laughs) For every person that's here tonight, for every person that's here tonight that's discouraged in their journey as a Christ follower, for every person that's here tonight that's been hurt in some way, by an organized church, for every person that's here tonight that's got big doubts and big questions about whether or not they can trust their life to Christ, for every person that's here tonight that understands that to follow you, it means changing who they are. Maybe when the rest of the world is saying, no, that's your identity, God, that your voice would get loud inside of them and say, no, this is not who I've created you to be that something inside of people tonight, they're going to trust the truth of these words in their heart, even when they cannot understand them with their mind, and they're going to put the full weight of their life upon you. They're going to look back to this night in 2013 and say, that's the night I took a step forward to let God govern my life. Let's worship together. have been running